0: I would like to introduce you to Maria Moyano, Executive Producer at the Museum of Ice Cream and an expert in creating interactive spaces. Maria's attention to detail and ability to come up with innovative solutions to unique social and technical challenges has brought her and her clients rapid success in a world in which the competition for your time and intention is extreme. Maria, welcome to the podcast. So you are the Executive Producer at the Museum of Ice Cream how did you become the executive producer?
1: I started in 2016. And when I joined the team, it was only four people on the actual production team. We had you know, our CEO, who's the creative director. And then we had head of construction, one producer, one graphic designer, and then I joined. And then as we started building more museums, the company started growing. And then I just owned most of the execution on the project.
0: Okay. And what was the initial concept process like? I believe you were given a list of like five or six ideas or concepts.
1: Yeah. For the, for the museum itself, because we had a... Yeah. Okay. So the first museum that I opened was in Miami. And my creative director picked iconic Miami motifs like the palm trees or the beaches. And she would kind of give that direction and be like, okay, I want a room with upside down pink palm trees. And then I would take that concept and kind of flush it out. What would that room look like? What does the floor look like? How many palm trees are there? What What's the activity in the room? We also give out treats. So like, what is the treat in the room? We went with chocolate covered bananas. Nice. So using basically the city's motifs as a design motion for the room.
0: Is that how the swimming pool of sprinkles came about?
1: No. So this. Sprinkle pool is, I would say, the catalyst that launched this whole movement. Um, Mary Ellis had that concept of like swimming in a pool of sprinkles. And I think it's like, what's the craziest thing I could do? And it's like, okay, well, a million sprinkles. So the Museum of Ice Cream, really the first call to fame was the sprinkle pool. And that was in New York. So the first sprinkle pool happened in New York. It was really, really tiny. And then we decided that that was the most successful experience. Mostly because it's so immersive, and that's what we were going for, the immersion aspect. And, like, you don't really get more immersive than jumping in a pool of sprinkles.
0: Definitely. So how did the concept evolve? You started out with Upside Down Palm trees in Miami, and then you moved to New York. That must have brought a different series of challenges.
1: Yeah. So when we first did Miami, after we finished that, we came to New York to do our pint shop, which was more of a marketing for our ice cream brand, so we decided how do we promote our ice cream, and give people taste of our our museum also. So we opened the pint shop in the meatpacking district, and we decided to do a tasting room concept where people could actually try the ice cream, and then we have three installations of little taste of our exhibits. So I think it was really interesting because I don't think there was anything like that really, like mixing retail an experience and we kind of just tried something out and that was a quick pop-up. It was only up for two months and we built it in only like a a month.
0: That's incredible. That
1: was pretty I mean, really? Yeah.
0: (laughs) And, and what were the concepts around that?
1: So for the pint shop, it had five ice cream flavors and we used each ice cream flavor to create products. So we had like churro churro. So we had an aisle of only churro products. And then we had like vanilla in there. So everything that had to do with vanilla. And then we want, we were like, how do we give people an experience around the actual ice cream, which gave us the tasting room. And we have really amazing staff that's like very eloquent and they're very excited and just get you pumped up. So we use our guides as actors to explain the process of making ice cream and creating your own. And I think people felt so in tune with our ice cream brand because they understood how we made it and when you create that experience for people get creates more sense of connection with your brand
0: okay when you were tasked with creating the new york space you had to come up with a lot of different things now i remember you're saying that you ended up using 3d printers as opposed to producers you tried to source some things that didn't work how did you arrive at that
1: i needed to do a tasting tray and to do anything that kind of has like crevices, you need to do a mold for it. And usually when people do molds, the initial cost is so high, unless you're gonna mass produce it, it's not worth it. So I found a different, I have an architect background. So I recall using 3D printers, laser cutters, CNC routers to create my models. And they're absolutely so quick. So found us a local studio in Brooklyn. We could do CNC routing of the trays. And then we use 3D printers to create like little fixtures to hold all the vanilla tubes. So I think production in a short time frame, I have to think, okay, I can't get a model produced in China in two weeks. What's my other move? And you kind of just have to piece together all these possibilities to give you one product.
0: And they were able to deliver in that few week time frame?
1: Yeah, most people feel like you tell them a timeline and they're very like, no, there's no way it's impossible. But I think if you kind of like break down the problem, you're like, okay, why is it impossible? Oh, I can't get the the material. Okay, I'll find the material for you. I get you the material tomorrow. Can you do it? Yeah, sure. So I think people get overwhelmed with timeframes. But if you really just break down on like, what is halting that timeframe from being possible, you can really do anything.
0: I love that perspective. Absolutely. (laughs) And then you become the ultimate problem solver.
1: Yes. That's why I feel like I've been very good at my job because I don't let those timelines scare me. I try to really unpack the problem and really try to figure out what is the solution or what's the best way to to find this, where some people might just get too flustered and, and give up.
0: Is that the difference between creating a successful project and not for you?
1: I think so. And I'm lucky enough that I am a designer also. So by combining those two disciplines of production and design, I could design the solution. Oh, I love it. Which is great. Yeah,
0: it is great. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you're working with food, science, fun, and each of those things bring challenges. So what things do you consider when you're curating an interactive environment? You want to invite or ignite imagination, and you also want to create a visual interactive experience. How do you bring all those things together?
1: It's really hard. Especially my CEO, she wants us to hit every marker. So we have a few pillars, and it's like, okay, it needs to be interactive. How is it interactive? It needs to reach all your senses so what am i smelling what am i tasting it means to ignite connections so there's so many pillars and i do find it very difficult when i try to hit all of them so i first figure out why are we doing this why are we making a sprinkle pool and it's like well we want people to feel the emotions of swimming and sprinkles okay so what are the core elements that are going to produce that is the smell really important kind of so okay i'm gonna make sure i have the smell And just try to break down like what is really necessary for the user experience. If the smell doesn't matter in this room, the visual matters more or like the taste matters more. I kind of try to just pick my battles on like what's the most important thing that's going to actually speak of what we're talking about.
0: And then have you adjusted some of the exhibitions or rooms based on experience?
1: All the time. All the time. (laughs) Unfortunately, since we build so, so fast. There's no room for R&D, research and development. And as we've grown and we've allowed for more time for the museum. So for example, Miami, we built in three months and New York, I built in nine months, a little bit more, like 10 months. So that gave me more time. For example, one of the most popular exhibits we have is the hanging bananas. Mm -hmm. And they're literally strings with bananas at the bottom. And the first one in LA One of our producers grabbed every single banana and spray painted it. Realized that didn't work. Grabbed it, dipped it. Multiple ways of just painting the banana. Hung them. They were beautiful, but they would get tangled. So then, okay, next iteration. Let's use different string. Next iteration. Let's put plastic tubing on the string so that they don't get tangled. There's so many times we've built exhibits and we've realized, what works and what doesn't work, and we have to constantly fix it.
0: It's just an iterative process, even while you're open.
1: Absolutely. We actually close the museum every single Tuesday and fix the entire museum. Like, I've repainted an entire museum on that Tuesday because (laughs) the wear and tear is insane. I don't think people understand that so much about interactive museums or interactive spaces. The wear and tear is huge.
0: And you need it, A, to look pristine, because people are coming for the visual experience yeah but you're also working with food which has a lot of requirements right it has to be spotless
1: yes yeah, so you have to you know one of my biggest struggles with food is the sink you always need a sink x amount of feet from what you're serving and then with our plumbing isn't conducive to the sink. We're spending so much money on the plumbing so you know like, okay wait should we rethink the treat can it be something else can it be an ice cream sandwich It is definitely a a lot of problem solving with how to make sure that the food component works.
0: So you're dealing with legal requirements or city law, right? Code, not just I want to create this amazing space, but there are other things that come in that I don't think people imagine.
1: Yeah, that's one of my other biggest troubles with a lot of vendors. They're like, no, like you can't put a slide inside your museum. You need soft padded floor and you need X amount of feet and your ceilings need to be this high. Code compliance has made so many regulations for us. And it's great a lot of times. And a lot of times it's like, we should be able to fight that code because there is new technology that can allow us to do those. There is floor padding that does go indoors. and So it is really hard to get people to be okay with putting a sprinkle pool and putting a slide in it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the city. Yeah, our fire
1: department. Every time we get the, you know, you have to do your fire department walk through, they are so confused. <laughs> like, why are they upside down pink palm trees? Where's your sprinklers? <laughs>
0: I love it. And you not only have a slide into the pool, but don't you have another slide in the museum yeah. as well?
1: In the New York one, we did a three-story slide. So you go up to the third floor and slide all the way to the basement.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And did you have to drill through floors to make that happen?
1: Yes. So we took over the H&M space on Soho District, and they already had this beautiful stair core, which we removed. <laughs> and we added an elevator. So we actually do a lot of construction, which truly was a learning experience on focus on your craft, because we're not a construction company. We are designers and producers for experiences. And we gave us the headache of creating a stair core and an elevator so that we could figure out how to do that and now looking back we've learned that when you're trying to do a lot of things to just hand it over to the experts because it's not easy to create a three-story slide and and elevators
0: (laughs) (laughs) no it's not no and you could have brought in a project manager with construction experience who might have mitigated some of that
1: yes now i know what it takes to build an elevator (laughs) yeah
0: who would have imagined so you also built a room where people could create their own ice cream. And that was something I believe you had to buy an extra ticket for. And you, you had what, how many seats in that room? And it was a 30-minute experience? That was
1: very difficult. 20 seats. Because one, I only had like two and a half weeks to do it. And luckily enough, we worked with IFF, who's the International Fragrance and Flavor Company. And they provided all the bases, the vanilla extract, and the vanilla components to make the ice cream and they taught us so I think that was a valuable lesson and finding an expert that no like I don't know how to make ice cream or how to do a tasting experience around ice cream but they did and I knew how to make it fit our brand so it's combining those two expertise and then the ops of that is really difficult because the cadence of change you got to see 20 people in 30 minutes, and then you have only 30 minutes to turn around to see the next group. And it's like, do you have all of the things you need to operate that? Uh, It took us like about, a, I would say, half a month to get it solid. And then we closed in a month.
0: That's really incredible. I mean, you have to keep the ice cream cold. You have to have the fragrances. You have to clean the place in between each grouping. You have to wash the dishes. And you have to have a team that's willing to do it, which I think is one of the greatest challenges to get a team that's willing to work to spec?
1: Yeah, I think our hiring process is, I think, a little bit different than a lot of people. We cast them. So almost like go a show. So these individuals are people who enjoy that show cadence or they enjoy putting on a show for people. So you have to get them to buy in. If they don't believe in the show they're putting on, if they don't believe that they can do or set up for success, then I, I don't think we would be able to do it. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. But they also have to pay attention to detail.
1: Definitely. Especially my CEO is very, very strict with that, which I think what has brought us to our success because we, we do pay attention to the details. When you enter the room, there's lab coats hanging on the wall so that we all feel like we're a group and we're a unit and we're doing this together. The trays, every tray had a little, like, hole for its purpose so it had seven little carve outs for the scoops and it had three little holes so that you know exactly where everything is placed which also sets up the guides for success because they know where everything goes because everything has its place it's like the mcdonald's theory and that's why they became so successful because they innovated the fast food system
0: and you've said a couple times your ceo is a stickler for detail and sets the bar high very high (laughs) <laughs> is that part of what motivates you and your team and as you said, helps ensure success?
1: I don't know if it gives us the motivation, this attention to detail, but I think we see the outcome and that's what gives us the motivation. We see the importance resonate. you know, we see why the tray is so beautiful, like you have these beautiful seven little ice cream scoops and they're just like so visually appealing. And the guests, when the ice cream comes out in this beautiful tray, they're all like, whoa. And then we're like, wow, that's cool. They're really impressed, especially me. I'm (laughs) like, whoa, they really think this is awesome.
0: That's amazing. You probably wouldn't have been successful without that attention to aesthetics and detail and perfection. Correct. What does it mean to, well, I should back up. What is the importance of social media in terms of the success of your space?
1: Well, I think that we owe a lot of our success due to social media. And I think there's like a misinterpretation sometimes. A lot of people that haven't gone to a museum think that we're just like the selfie factory or like it's all for the visuals. Honestly, our first museum didn't have a social media presence at all, and it sold out consecutively for 18 days. So I don't think that social media is what is the driver at first. I think people truly want experiences, and they truly love ice cream, and that's the driver. But it has allowed this visual and the look of the ice cream museum to like seen everywhere which has allowed a lot of people to have more access to it and want to go
0: so part of the experience visually is for social media and part of the people have taken a thousand a million pictures of themselves making ice cream and tasting
1: many pictures yeah i mean truth is we're an experience first company you know we're focused on real life experiences And creating immersive installations means you have to focus on all that, the experience, the senses, the tactile. And you don't see that on the social. But it's okay because they'll come because they saw the social and they'll have the experience.
0: And when you say you're an experienced company, does that mean the goal is to create multiple experiences outside the Museum of Ice Cream?
1: Yes, we're always looking to innovate. Last year we worked very long on another project trying to figure out how to make another experience that is a museum of ice cream you were still working on figuring that out obviously with covid people are now going to begin to be afraid to be in immersive experiences i truly hope that this will not be forever and that i don't have to rethink what an immersive museum looks like because i love the idea of an immersive museum but i guess with our world changing every single day we just have to always be innovating
0: That's true. I'm not sure it'll change forever, but it certainly will change for the near future, Yeah, which would mean adding another layer to the way you function. Definitely. Yeah. Sorry about that. I know. And as a team leader, what are the challenges you face leading a creative team?
1: I've learned a lot about all the different heads at the table that you need to create creative spaces. You need a person like me who's a producer, but you also need the designer and you also need the operations. There's just so many people you need and I don't think they ever taught us how to communicate properly. So it's really hard for a producer who isn't a designer or isn't creative to speak to a designer and understand what they're saying. And then the operations too, the person that's dealing with how the guides going to work there? How is the cream going to be served? So there's these three different outlets that need to communicate and that's been my most difficult thing understanding how we all work together and I think it goes back to unpacking a problem so like the designer really wants it to be shiny and the producer's like it can't be shiny it has to have grip and it's like okay how do we make this both happen and it's just really understanding why does the designer want it to be shiny and why does the producer wanted to be and it's a lot of unpacking and communication
0: and then is it getting each side to understand what the other one wants and why or is it just making everybody happy
1: no no one's ever going to be happy <laughs> <laughs> there's some battles you have to lose and as, as the executive producer you deal with the producers under you and, and the designers and I'm lucky enough to have both heads where I understand why a designer wants something and I understand why the producer needs something. So it's about compromise. And we're all fighting for the same thing at the end. We want a successful museum, so we have to compromise.
0: Okay. And how do you keep everybody on the same team and meeting deadline?
1: <sighs> deadlines are so hard. <laughs> Especially when your deadline's like tomorrow or end of day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's about what's important. It kind of goes back to like, okay, what is the guest really going to notice? Like, if we have to finish this room today, and we need to put the floorboards down, or we need to put, like, paint the walls pink, it's kind of more important to put the floorboards down because the floor is just raw, you know, so you have to pick your battles, order of importance, priority, what is priority, what is the guest going to really be affected by, and then just making sure that your team understands that and that they believe in that too, so that's Everyone is organized and knows what they have to hit.
0: So I'm guessing there were more than a couple of, let's say, longer than eight-hour days.
1: Oh, my gosh. I wish eight-hour day, 18. 18-hour
0: 18 days?
1: Definitely.
0: For weeks, weekends, whatever it took?
1: Yeah. I don't know why we always do this, but we always think to open during Christmas and Thanksgiving so all my thanksgivings i mean i took the thanksgiving day off but like before and after and vendors don't work during thanksgivings then it's like you have to do it right before but yeah it's 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 a lot a lot of work but the reward is so great afterwards it's worth it
0: and it sounds like and I, i don't mean to be cliche but really it sounds like the hard work long hours attention to detail whatever it takes to get it done is what has to happen if you want to be successful in your space
1: Definitely. When we first started, we were very um, ambitious and we were on this high of build, build, build. And people were so obsessed with it. And like it was resonating everywhere and you were just popping them out like in every city. And that adrenaline rush was a lot for us. And we just kept running and kept running and we all did burn out. And then we hired more people and people were like, hey, this is not okay. Like you guys need some time. So you know we've hired amazing designers and producers, and they've allowed us to kind of like, okay, like let's all slow down a little bit, take our time, let's get this right, which has been great. but it's also really amazing when you have a short deadline you really the more parameters you give people, the more interesting the product is
0: because
1: because you're forced to just make decisions and you just there's not a lot of thinking, so you just do it and you're not scared to fail. you just do it and if it sucks and it fails like Okay, well, let's switch it. But I think time allows us to think too much where we're afraid and we don't do. So sometimes we just, at the beginning, we were just doing, 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 and a lot of things worked and a lot of things didn't, but at least we were able to see them.
0: Yeah, and make them happen and fix them every Tuesday.
1: Every Tuesday.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how have you, well, I should say that you used to work at another museum prior to this Mm -hmm. creating exhibitions? Producing exhibitions, mm-hmm. did that influence this work? Or are they very different?
1: I think very different, but it taught me a lot because the Frost Science Museum in Miami—it was an institution that started, you know, back in the '30s. So it was a science museum that a lot of its board, you know, an older generation that saw museums in a certain way, and then the city decided to spend millions of dollars on this new museum. And this was in 2016, as our generation grew, our attention span is like so short, so you needed to entertain more. And I think the science museum caught on to that, and we had a lot of interactive exhibits, especially with science. You like play, you know, you make, you're touching a lot. And my job was exhibition technician, which I had to see the traveling exhibits and place them in this physical space and make them fit into our actual space. That's when I first started seeing how an audience, especially children, science museums full of children, how they interact with the exhibits. And I learned that they break literally everything. Really? It's uncanny. My full-time job was to fix these exhibits because they were breaking every single day. <laughs> and then when I went into the Museum of Ice Cream, everything which has to be touched, is supposed to be touched, so you learn a lot about materiality and little techniques that help with, you know, pe- people are going to touch this. So how do you make sure does it doesn't break? And if it breaks, is it, how do we make sure that it's easy to replace?
0: Interesting. I guess I never thought about mm-hmm. that, but it is. People are touching everything you guys make everything. all the time. You
1: know, they have a full-time staff a staff at Disney and all the theme parks with a full workshop to literally remake almost all of the installations because think about all the kids that are running around throwing themselves on the walls like things break all the time
0: that's true i guess they might have to be able to fabricate anything at any time Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and do you pick material speaking materiality do you pick materials that not that they can't get dirty but they're easier to clean or not only last longer and are gorgeous but easier to clean and fit in your space in that sense
1: yeah that's one of my like the hardest choices is materiality because materials that have been invented to hold wear and tear are very construction type materials so they don't look pretty and i have to make them look pretty so um it's been really difficult to find that and you know we like work with materials library which is an endless amount of resources to see what material works best we've changed our sprinkle pool Sprinkles four times because you can't get it right. They're either too soft. They're too hard. They're too big. They're too small. They're not slippery enough. There's oh my god! It's like you just <laughs> gotta keep trying.
0: I so, yeah, love that you keep reinventing the sprinkle. Literally. Because do you just see it not working right, or do people complain like these sprinkles are too hard?
1: Yes, the first time they were too small, and they got on people's clothes and their pockets and their jean cuffs, And then when they left the pool, it was everywhere. And then it would litter our entire city. And people were livid. And they were plastic, rightfully so. They were getting in our oceans. And we were like, okay, we cannot do this any longer. So we're like, okay, let's make them bigger. <laughs> <laughs> we make them bigger. They won't stick to anyone's clothes. Correct. But then we made them too hard. So think about you putting your hand in a bag of rice, right? Ah, uh, that feeling's pretty nice. But if your bag of rice are like a pinky wide, your hand kind of just like doesn't glide in. Yeah. So we lost that sensorial feeling, and then we're like, okay, well let's make them softer. But when you make them softer, then your body doesn't slide through them. Oh right. It's been honest to tell you that we haven't gotten it right yet. We're still working it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you have to let me know when you develop the ultimate sprinkle. That's such a great yeah. design problem. Definitely. Okay. I have to ask just in terms of materials too, if you're through three D printing the plates or the trays and the utensils, how do you choose a material there that can be three D printed or routed that's also durable and gorgeous? Or do you just need to have to replace those on a regular basis?
1: For example, for the boards for yeah. the tasting trees, we used cutting board, you know what you used to cut a cutting board mm-hmm. material? Yeah. I can't remember the, the scientific name for it, but Um, It's washable, it's heat resistant. So a lot of research on that. And we tend to try to recycle almost everything. And we do have a a full-time cleaning staff, So they're the ones that are switching it out, cleaning it out. And 3D printing, it's not cheap, but it's pretty fast. And the material is also recyclable. So it has been a good tactic to use.
0: Okay. And then the walls of the space? Do you have to put anything specific on the walls or do you just have to repaint regularly?
1: The walls are something that I'm still trying to figure out because, yes, we do repaint it a lot. And there's specific areas that are high concentration areas where people lean back, put their hands on, kick up their little feet. And I have to repaint that one wall like X amount of times. We use a lot of vinyls in our spaces, graphic vinyls, which are great, but if you get one little dot chemical or anything you have to replace the entire vinyl so i'm starting to look into using almost like powder coated steel for a level like at least the lower level
0: oh interesting yeah
1: it's really expensive but if i kept hiring a painter to come in every single tuesday and paint that one wall and we have a space for longer than two three years the investment might be worth it
0: well that makes sense Mm -hmm. i just find all that really interesting so how have you evolved personally and professionally over the course of your career
1: Ooh, um, I think I've definitely become a better problem solver. Um, I, you know, it's really interesting because I do believe that my field is very unique. I don't think, you know, when I tell people I'm an experiential producer, they're like, what does that even mean? So I don't have a rule book of how do you do these things as an architect? Working at a firm, it's very two plus two equals four. But no one can tell you what density your sprinkles should be. So I think that I've been very, one, confident creating and innovating because I can ask millions of people, you know, hey, how should I do this? And they won't know. So I've had to become my own expert and try to figure these things out. And I think that in my career, it's really setting me apart because now I've been doing this for three years. And, you know, the immersive environments, I think, will continue to grow and they are a very unique field. So I'm trying to I am trying to become an expert in this field and figure out those things. But I do reach out to mentors all the time who are in the design world um, and kind of just understand how they've gone through problem solving and then take little bits of information and then apply it to my field.
0: Okay. And what is one thing you've learned along the way?
1: Anything is possible.
0: (laughs) That's good. And what personal characteristic do you most attribute your success to?
1: Resilience. I think that when I did my first museum, I kind of like had a bunch of breakdowns where I was like, "I, I cannot put dangling balloons in the sky in a week, Mary Alice. I can't do it. And she was like, yes, you can. You kind of have to. I just, I would fight myself, I can't do it, but Once I did it, it taught me that like you can. You just need to be resilient. You need to figure it out. And there's always going to be a way if you just find a way. So I think resilience is something that I've really attached to. That's
0: great. Do you think people get in their own way a lot in that sense?
1: In their own way as in like they psych themselves out or?
0: Yeah, or they say, I can't do it. I just can't do it instead of forcing themselves to resolve it.
1: Absolutely. Hiring, it's been a really difficult thing to work with people. Let's say that because then they make you feel like you can't do it. If that person wasn't getting into your head, maybe you would be like, I can do this. But a lot of people just don't believe in themselves. That's the biggest problem. It's It literally stops you from completing your task.
0: Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people don't believe in themselves and a lot of people have not wanted to take on the difficult task of problem solving or quite honestly, probably not realize the pleasure of solving that problem.
1: It's the most satisfying thing. You're like, Holy, I can't believe I just did that.
0: Right? I mean, really.
1: <laughs> and people look at it and they have no idea what it took to do that. But, like, you know, you're like, wow, you don't even know what I went through to do that.
0: <laughs> I'm sure people have no idea when they walk in. Yeah. Absolutely none. And one last question. What advice would you give to someone who has a desire to step out on a new career path and who would like to create a career based on the things they love and believe in?
1: I would say that it's okay to fail because I think a lot of people don't step out and do something different because they're afraid of the failure. But when you fail, you learn so much. When I graduated with my master's in architecture, for me to decide to not get my architecture license was really scary because I went to school for four years to have the ability and have this you know license that forever I'm going to be an architect. And then I decided to build ice cream museums. And my parents were like, are you sure? Like, is this stable? And honestly, it doesn't matter. I mean, a pandemic hits and my business is ruined for three months so far.
0: Yeah, sure. But
1: I learned so much and I'm going to take these tools and apply them elsewhere if it doesn't continue. So I think it's just not being afraid to fail.
0: And I like the idea that you took it on and your attitude that things are going to happen, they're going to work. If it doesn't, you'll figure it out.
1: Yeah. Well, everything will be okay at the end. Seriously. (laughs)
0: It's a perfect way to wrap. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you everyone for joining the conversation. Please join us again on Thomas Werner Podcast.